Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 86. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 16 through 19 in the second book of Kings and follow with a consideration of one of the most fanciful and persistent legends of the Tanakh, the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. In case you're just joining us, we're still neck deep in this whole Kings thing. I mean, the book is called the Book of Kings. So, Pekach ben Ramalia is king in Israel, and Ahaz, son of Yotam, is king in Judah. And Ahaz has been a bad, bad boy. He's even passed his own son through the abominable fires of the idol worshippers. And he's near offered, and he burned incense at the high places like some kind of heathen. And, well, you know what happens to heathen idolaters. You've been a very bad boy. You must be punished. <laughs> so Razin, king of Aram, teams up with Israel to attack Judah. So Ahaz turns to Tiglat Pileser, the Assyrian king, for help, but it's going to cost him. So he basically picks the treasury clean and pays the Assyrian a hefty bribe. The Assyrians do as promised, laying Aram low. And when Ahaz comes to Damascus to pay his respects to Tiglat Pileser, he sees the fancy altar the Assyrian is using, and he thinks to himself, I have got to give me one of these! And he instructs Uriah the priest to reproduce it for Jerusalem, which initiates a series of changes and downgrades to the temple hardware. Chapter 17 begins with Hoshea coming to power in Israel and trying to finagle his way out from under Assyrian domination with help, perhaps from Egypt. But Shalmaneser is wise to Hoshea's tricks, and he has the Israelite king arrested and locked up. But the die is cast, and the Israelites continue to resist, so the Assyrian king lays siege to Samaria for three years, subdues them, and takes the northerners into exile. And so we're clear, the omniscient narrator proceeds to explain in great detail over the next 16 verses why the Israelites were exiled. In short, You done messed up, Aaron! The Assyrian king then decides to import foreign peoples to settle in the land of Israel, but because they're idolaters, they have some issues with, well, lions. <laughs> which is really not safe. So the Assyrian king figures that the idolatrous immigrants need to worship the local god who is clearly angry. So he dispatches an Israelite priest from among the exiles back to Israel to teach the idolatrous immigrants about God and how to worship God properly, which the immigrants do, but they also don't want to forego their own gods. So the new residents of the land of Israel erect worship sites to God and to their own and proceed to worship both, which doesn't really satisfy God, but I guess it's Good enough for now. Uh, chapter 18 shifts the action back to Judah, to the new king Hezekiahu, who, quote, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as all that David his forefather had done. Yay! He sets out to eliminate all traces of idolatry from Judah, which God likes a lot. So Hezekiah has a lot of success until the Assyrians finish with Israel and move on to attack Judah, and then things kind of go off the rails. Even when Hezekiah strips down every last precious metal from every last overlaid item in the temple, it's not enough to satisfy Sancheriv, who sends his vizier, high chamberlain, and head steward down to Jerusalem to taunt the Jews and shatter their already fragile morale. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person! Ah, blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King! You and all your silly English can 
The only response Chizkiyahu's aide has to this is, please stop talking in that funny French accent. No, actually, what he actually says is, please speak in Aramaic and not in Hebrew because you're freaking everybody out. Which only winds up the Assyrians even more, and they go on about how when they're done, the Jews will be eating their own poo and drinking their own urine, and that no one should listen to Chizkiyahu if they know what's good for them, and that basically all that's left to do at this point is surrender, which isn't so terrible because Sancheriv will quote, Take you to a land like your land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and oil and honey, and live, and do not die, and do not listen to Chizkiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will save us. Did the gods of the nations ever save each its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? The answer to that question, by the way, is no. When Chizkiah's aides relay this message to Chizkiah, he goes into full-on mourning and sends the same aides to find Yeshayahu, the son of Amotz, the prophet. And he tells his aides to tell Yeshayahu, quote, For children have come to the birth stool, and there is no strength to give birth. Which I guess is talking to the prophet in prophetic verse, but basically what he's telling Yeshayahu is that the Assyrian king is talking a lot of smack about God, and what's God going to do about it? Yeshayahu says, don't worry about those flunkies, I got this. So when Chizkiyahu gets the message from Sancheriv talking more smack, Chizkiyahu takes it to the temple and spreads it out for God to see, and he prays for deliverance. And Yeshayahu sends word to the king to say that God has heard your prayers, and then the prophet waxes poetic a little bit about how Judah is like a young girl who mocks the bad suitor and rejects Assyria and accepts only God, who will smite Sancheriv something fierce, quote, because of your raging against me and your din that came up in my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit between your lips and will turn you back on the way on which you came. God promises plentiful crops for Judah and bounty, and most important, safety, as the Assyrian threat will be diffused. Finally, the being good like David Dividend pays off, because that night, the Lord's messenger enters the Assyrian camp and... morning, 185,000 corpses litter the fields around Jerusalem, and Sancheriv is nowhere to be found. He literally pulls up stakes and flees all the way back to Nineveh, where, he, where when he kneels to pray in the house of Nisroch, he is dispatched by two assassins. <laughs> Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. As I said in previous episodes, Elisha has come to be regarded, by me at least, as a legendary figure. Respect, West Side. So is Avraham, so is Noach, so is Moshe, and some of the events in the Tanakh remain potent images in our people's history. The plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho tumbling from the shofar blasts. But one of the most tantalizing legends of the Tanakh, one of the most fanciful, one of the most consistent, one that leaps off the page and still captures the imagination that defies logic and dares to cling to the story, even in the 21st century, is the ten lost tribes of Israel. 
The details of the story are relayed in a very straightforward fashion. The northern kingdom, with some encouragement from Egypt, tries to throw off the yoke of Assyrian king Shalmaneser V, and as punishment, the people of Israel are sent into exile. For such a momentous event in the history of the Jews, where ten-twelfths of the nation get lost, it gets like no attention or discussion. Why it happened is a huge talking point. In fact, it's the biggest biblical talking point of all talking points. And in case you're not clear why the exile happened, it's because... You done messed up, A.A. Ron! But the details of the expulsion and the resettlement are left to the imagination. There is a passing illusion in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, whereby Jeremiah proclaims, quote, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and, and she who is in labor together. A great company they shall return here, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. But that, I gotta say, is pretty vague. I mean, the return of the lost will be one of the markers of a quasi-messianic age, but, but what about them now? Like, what are they doing right now? What are they wearing? What are they eating? And so for the first time in TanakhCast, we are going to look to extra-canonical works to help us out with this, which I suppose merits a little talk about this whole business about canon versus extra-canon or non-canon. I touched on this in episode one when I talked about the Torah and its structure and the documentary hypothesis, so a quick recap I think is in order. When I say canon, I'm basically referring to the official books, what the deciders decided is part of the official formal story. So to use an analogy from pop culture, J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter series, books one through seven. She wrote them, they're canon, as well as the books she wrote which are kind of peripheral to the original seven books, like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, or Quidditch Through the Ages. And even the script for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is an unofficial eighth book, that's canon too. But if I sit down and write Shmuley Feigelbaum and the Bagel of Destiny, a Hogwarts romp with a Jewish character at the center, it would definitely be extra or non-canonical even though it's set at the same school as Harry's with many of the same characters and even the same plot twists, it's not an official Harry Potter story. Unless, unless J.K. Rowling reads it and says, this book is amazing and it fits so well with the spirit of the Potterverse, so... Expecto Patronum! And boom, suddenly I'm canon. Okay, are we clear? So extra canon with the right packaging can become canon, but generally what is outside the canon stays outside. So there are official books, official stories, etc. And then there is the outside stuff, which you could call fan fiction, you know, books and stories created by unauthorized writers that were inspired by canon or the spirit of the canon. Got that? So the Tanakh as a book was redacted, meaning there was a person or a group of persons, probably a group, probably a group of men, who sat around a table and made some decisions about which books would be included in the anthology known as the Tanakh. Torah? In. Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings? In. But why? There are a number of criteria we believe these men used to make the decision to include or exclude. The biggest one is probably whether the book in question was on message. Considering what we just read about exile and all the moralizing around the wayward kings and their sinning, Kings 1 and Kings 2 are totally on message, as are all the former prophets. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. 
Another criteria we think those men used was the language of the book in question. Was it written in Hebrew or, I don't know, Aramaic? Also, we think they might have used the test of time criteria as well. Historians say that the newspaper is the first draft of history, but we would never think of using yesterday's New York Times in a history class. We need a little bit more perspective on the affairs of the day. The same thing was true, we think, about the books of the Tanakh. Anything on our side of the dividing line might be considered too recent and thus too unreliable, too untested by time. And where is the dividing line? Probably around the time of Ezra in the 6th century BCE. Anything older than Ezra might make the cut, but anything more recent? Meh. meh. And the thing is that the Tanakh alludes to all kinds of books. The Book of the Wars of the Lord mentioned the Book of Numbers, Sefer Hayashar, the Book of the Upright, mentioned in Joshua and 2 Samuel. The manner of the kingdom mentioned in 1 Samuel. A book of songs is mentioned in 1 Kings, as is the Acts of Solomon. Also, Kings constantly refers to the chronicles of the kings of Israel. The chronicles of the kings of Judah, on the other hand, also mentioned in Kings, is probably referring to 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Chronicles mentioned additional prophetic books, such as the book of Nathan the prophet, the book of God the seer, the book of Shemaiah, and the book of Edo the seer. And these books all surely predated Ezra. Why didn't they get included? They were probably definitely, no, they were definitely on message and in the right language. Well, perhaps over the centuries, they just were simply lost. That happens. Books that were popular in one generation just don't physically survive into the next. I mean, there's only so many written copies of the of these books and, you know, stuff happens. And then, even with the seemingly hard and fast rules around inclusion and exclusion, there are notable exceptions. Actually, there's really one notable exception, the book of Daniel, which made the cut, but was probably written several hundred years after the time of Ezra. And there are extensive sections of Daniel which are written in Aramaic. The next batch of books I'm going to reference existed in their entirety at the time when those men sat around over coffee and cakes and decided which books would be in the Tanakh. They were deemed inappropriate, either because their authorship was in question or they were a bit wobbly off message or on a message. They are the extra canonical, or as the Bible scholars call them, apocryphal texts from the Greek apocryphos or obscure, like the book of Esdras 1 through 6, the book of Tobit, the book of Judith, additions to Esther, the book of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, otherwise known as the wisdom of Ben Sirah, the book of Baruch with the letter of Jeremiah, the song of the three young men, and the prayer of Azariah, the story of Susanna, Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and first and second Maccabees. And then there is what's called the pseudepigrapha, which are books written in a biblical style and ascribed to an author who probably didn't write it. Examples of these include the letter of Aristeus, the martyrdom and ascension of Isaiah, Joseph and Osnat, the life of Adam and Eve, the lives of the prophets, the ladder of Jacob, Janus and Jambres, the history of the captivity in Babylon, the history of the Rechavites, Eldad and Medad, the history of Joseph, the odes of Solomon, the prayer of Joseph, and the prayer of Jacob. Also included in this list are 3rd and 4th Maccabees, the book of Enoch, the book of Jubilees, 4 Baruch, and the Psalms of Solomon. All of this is to say that our story of the Israelite exiles, the ten lost tribes mentioned and otherwise forgotten by the Book of Kings, is taken up in other books, books outside the canon. The oldest source with more information is the fourth book of Esdras, which we think was written shortly after the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem toward the end of the first century CE. 
Second Esdras chapter 13, verses 40 through 48 state, quote, Those are the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hoshea the king, whom Salmanasser the king of Assyria led away captive, and he carried them over the waters, and so they came into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the heathen and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them, and held still the flood, till they passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. And the same region is called Artseret, but those that be left behind of thy people are they that are found within my borders. This place, Artseret, though cryptic, is actually, scholars think, a corruption of Eretz Acheret, which means other land. Tobit, the hero of the eponymous apocryphal book, supposedly was a member of the lost tribe of Naphtali. And 4th Ezra, chapter 13, verses 34 through 45, saw, quote, a peaceable multitude. These are the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land. In 2nd Baruch, verses 77 through 78, Baruch dispatches a letter with an eagle to the surviving nine and a half tribes, urging them to repent their bad deeds. Blimey, you fools! And then the accounts begin to take on this very mythical flavor, that the ten tribes live on the other side of a great mysterious river in a kind of Shangri-La, a moral and ethical paradise shrouded in mystery. Which is a total reversal of the usual shtick about the northerners being these legendary sinners and idolaters, which I have to admit is kind of a nice twist. The rabbis of the Mishnah and Talmud embellish on this legend. They adopt the name given to the river first by Josephus. They call it the Sambation, and they bestow on this river magical powers. Rabbi Akiva tells the Roman governor Tinius Rufus in a fan fiction Genesis Rabbah that the Sambation churns violently all week long, but rests on the Shabbat. But then this ethereal Fata Morgana takes, on, it takes a strange turn. In 880 CE... A dark-skinned Jew named Eldad kicks up in Kairouan, North Africa, and claims that he is a member of the lost tribe of Dun. He tells of his people, their fabulous traditions and customs, and he tells all of this in a Hebrew that is comprehensible but archaic. At that moment, a story that had been the stuff of legends became very, very real. If Eldad the Danite was legit, and he came from somewhere, where was that somewhere? Central Asia? maybe equatorial Africa, or after the Europeans reached what they called the New World, maybe the Ten Tribes got there first a long time ago. Shouldn't we go and find them and have a big fat Jewish family reunion? Wouldn't that be like the best thing ever? So you can imagine the reaction of the Jews of Amsterdam when Aharon Levi de Montezinos returned from his voyage to South America in 1644, his mind afire with wondrous tales. He recounted of finding Indians beyond the mountain passes of Ecuador, who greeted him by reciting the Shema. One of Amsterdam's leading Jews, Menashe ben Yisrael, was so taken with this account and so convinced of its importance that he dedicated his book, The Hope of Israel, to it. The Messiah was near. Montezinos' story was surely evidence of this. What I find most interesting about the persistence and consistency of this story of the ten lost tribes of Israel is what it means more for the tellers over the centuries. 
you know, the, the not lost Jews living in as a beleaguered minority in a culture and land not their own. Think about it. Think of your life in the diaspora, the hardship, the persecution, the triumphal narratives of the majority. It's in your face all the time. The majority culture and society in which you live as a second-class citizen. You know, the majority lording their power over you and your faith like every minute of the day. How would it feel knowing that somewhere out there, there are Jews living pure Jewish lives together without compromise as a majority in their own place separate and isolated from the world but in a, in a jewish utopia a place that started out as a place of exile a punishment but became their own a jewish heaven on earth would that evince hope would it be a consolation would the fate of those jews be one i would want for myself or would it make me the teller better appreciate what Ovid said so long ago about the harvest always being richer in the other man's field. Think about it. Fortunately, today the matter has been settled once and for all. If there is a lost tribe out there, or ten, Google will find them and provide directions for a visit. Rerouting. Mechashev Maslul Mechadash. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 87 when we continue the second book of Kings with chapters 20 through 23.